comedy as a function is just a great pain processor for me. And I've learned it's a great pain processor for others. And not just the pain for black people, but especially the pain for white people. You're listening to Lives That Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school for Sidwell Friends, a pre-K through 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, Sidwell Friends Director of Equity, Justice, and Community, Natalie Randolph, and I sat down with Burratunde Thurston, class of 1995. He is a well-known writer, social commentator, comedian, and the podcast host for How to Citizen and We're Having a Moment. His 2019 TED Talk, How to Deconstruct Racism, One Headline at a Time, has been called one of the most important of the last decade. He is also the author of the 2012 bestseller, How to Be Black. In this episode, we talk about the individuals and events that shaped Baratunde and explore the important role that humor has in healing our divided society. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Garman, head of the school, and we are here with Baratunde public intellectual, comedian, writer, producer. We're very fortunate to have him with us today. Welcome uh, to our podcast, Baratunde. Thank you for having me, Brian. Good to be here. Back at Sidwell. Oh, it's it's such a pleasure to have you with us. I don't know if you remember this, but I certainly remember the first time that we met. Uh, and I was fortunate to be introduced to you by a wonderful person named Ellen Pearson. Do you yeah. remember Ellen? Of course I remember Miss Pearson. Yes, she was our, our ally in the in the big office. Yeah, she is a wonderful person um, and still remains in touch with Sidwell Friends. But if I'm not mistaken, Ellen is the person who gave me this book that I'm holding in my hand right now, which is entitled Better Than Crying, Poking Fun at Politics, the Press, and Pop Culture. Was that your first book? Wow, you, that you went far for that one. I was braced <laughs> to hear how to be black. I'm like, oh, here's somebody else handing out how to be black, and it's funny to hand it to a not black person. And you went to the self-published 2003 very limited edition better than crying that was indeed my first book and and so this was a self-published book and and uh this what what struck me about this book was actually uh the epigraph uh which is from dick gregory and i'm not sure that our students would know who dick gregory is right now but i i love this quote i want to share it with with the anyone who's listening, a man has two ways out in life, laughing or crying. There's more hope in laughing, which you are very effective at making people laugh. You're also very effective in making people think. And the, and the question of Dick Gregory showing up in this first book struck me as a, a question of influence. And maybe we could start there. Sure. You have a very interesting career. Who are your models? Who 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 have who has led you to be where you are? Wow. Um, well, Dick Gregory's one of them. I came across him in our house. I grew up on Newton Street in Mount Pleasant, uh, Columbia Heights, the border of 16th and Newton Street. Uh, raised by my mother, Arnita, and living with my older sister. Belinda. It was the three of us. And largely it was the two of us because my sister's nine years older. So in our house, I remember coming across Dick Gregory health books, like nutritional books. I think I first understood of Dick Gregory as some kind of like tofu eating hippie <laughs> um, and not a brilliant comedian 
or, or a potent voice for human rights and civil rights. And I would learn some of those things later. Um, but I found in his voice, I read a few of his autobiographies, I think he has more than one, his path to to and through comedy to something even higher. And you know, I, pictures of him in marches uh, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and then eventually the 2000s. So he, as I, as I started to come to comedy myself, he remained in the back of my head as someone who could be serious and be funny. Mm -hmm. And there was some early advice in my career. It's like, oh, are you going to talk about politics? Why are you going to be on this serious stuff? I answer everything about race. And like Dick Gregory was an activist and an artist. And he was one of the first voices I knew to, to bridge those. So he set a path unknowingly, I'm sure, um, as he did for a lot of other people who he doesn't know. And then, of course, my mother as the primary influence and in, in the model I had in my house um, who worked her butt off and also had fun and was you know, playful with me and with my sister um, and had high expectations, uh, too. So those those two people come to mind. Uh, I really before, you know, as a kid, I really looked up to um, Bill Cosby for. Mm -hmm. And obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, from Fat Albert to the Cosby Show to a different world, he was sort of creating universes where I could see myself. And of course, the team that was around him bringing those universes to life. No one does this alone. But he was, you know, sacrosanct in our house. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was high on the list of kind of entertainment voices that we would listen to her audio cassettes on road trips as we would drive to the outer banks of North Carolina or to. Virginia Beach or Chincoteague, and, uh, and then in the same mix of audio, Garrison Keillor of Link hmm. Woke. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So some of, I think I, I grew up hearing a lot of other voices, even, you know, my house had basically one other voice for the most part, which is my mom. Uh, but those are some of the, the folks who I think I was influenced by very passively, but I can see the effect if I'm looking back, honestly. You could see the effect of wanting to live in a place where everybody was above average. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Wait, oh, my uh, mom thought that was the, the funniest line and just the most adorable thing. Um, yeah, that, I mean, Garrison Keillor kind of partially raised me because he occupied my head when uh, we were on these long, long trips. I'm 95. Sure, sure, a little bit. Share a little bit more about your mother, if you would. Um, you know, you've you've spoken about her influence on your on your career, on your thinking. Uh, what what was it that she opened to you that was has had such a lasting effect on your thinking and on your talent? Um, my my mother opened the door to uh, self love in a way that was really useful. Um, she was, she grew up, she was born in 1940. She died in 2005. So it's when I kind of established her life timeline. And a lot happened over those 65 years um, in terms of identity and pride and self-esteem and health and everything changed. Um, and so she was born into a world of loathing for her as a black person, for her as a woman, uh, or, or at least non-consideration at best, right? That's probably the most charitable um, lens on how America would treat someone like my mother. Just didn't consider her. And 
through the 50s, the 60s, black power, the Pan-African stuff, the, the health craze, the anti-nuke stuff. So my mom was like in all that. And I think she gave me um, doubt about the myth of America, very useful for someone growing up in a, in a lot of propaganda to have an, another perspective to say, question what you're being told and what you're being sold. She gave me pride and self-love. And we did a lot of Black cultural celebratory things physically in the house, but also in the community. And there was so much available in DC, of course. Um, and she, she gave me permission to chart my own course. In fact, I would say she shoved me down my own course. There are a lot of uh, friends who I've had over the years and I've gotten to know their parents and their dynamic with their parents. And I realized how largely lucky I was to have a mother who didn't expect a specific thing from me. She expected a general thing. Uh, she didn't expect me specifically to be a doctor or specifically to go to college X or become thing Y, but she expected me generally uh, to acquit myself uh, proudly uh, to, to stand up for myself, to uh, know my own boundaries and assert them no matter what authority tries to cross them. In fact, I remember a moment at Sidwell. It was my early time. I joined Sidwell in, 70, um, in seventh grade, I guess in 89. And there was a teacher who grabbed me to make a point that I should be quieter in the, in the cafeteria. And I told my mother about this. She's like, she didn't have a permission to put her hands on you. No one has permission to touch you. And that was a deep statement from her because she had been touched inappropriately as a girl um, and, and molested and abused. And so she felt an extraordinary responsibility to teach me that is not allowed. So I learned that self-regard, self-respect, boundaries, um, at her insistence <laughs> and, and, uh, when other friends, I could see their parents bribing them to go to certain colleges and make certain life choices. My mom was just insistent that I was doing what I felt I should be doing, um, and what I wanted to do. And she would remind me, you know, you can try this, you can explore that you could, you could become this, you could audition for that. Um, and so when I, even I majored in philosophy at Harvard. And everybody else's parents were flabbergasted. They're like, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? Ooh, your mother, she must feel a certain way about that. Are you going to get a job? And I was like, you, my mom is the most excited about that. Maybe you have the issue with it. Don't put it on my mom, though. She's, she's got my back in this. So that felt, that felt good. That was a, a lot of her positive attributes were, were all those things. And so she sends you to Sidwell Friends School. Um, and would you share, what was that experience like? Uh, you're you're oh, in Sidwell yeah. Friends School in 1989, a seventh grader. And what was it like to be in the school at that time? It was weird, man. I got I to gotta set a different scene. So born in 77, raised between 14th and 16th Street on a low street called Newton. Right across our window is St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. Just out the left, you cross 16th, you look to the left, you can see the White House on a clear day, and you walk by Canaan Baptist Church. I would walk to elementary school, four-ish blocks to Bancroft Elementary. Mm. Everybody in that school lived in the neighborhood. Everybody. We played together. We knew each other. We ate dinner in each other's places. We played basketball in the alley behind Kevin's house. And there were, by my recollection, two white children 
in this school. It was William and it was Willa <laughs> in our grade. They literally shared a root name. You know what I'm saying? Like that's a total universe apart. And no one had, no one was rich. We were probably poor-ish, but no one really knew um, because you just lived in your neighborhood. You had your context. And so going to Sidwell, just the process of visiting, I visited three private schools and they all blew my face off because they were so different from each other in some ways, but from my experience. So when I showed up at Sidwell, um, it was, I mean, the campus, there was a campus. Yeah. Who has a campus for a seventh grader? That's crazy. You know, <laughs> like yeah. we had a right. very large building and our playground, generously titled, was the parking lot. And we played tackle football. Little boys played tackle football on asphalt. And my knees to this day retain a dark patch under each kneecap because I skinned my knees so much. There's like permanent dermatologic, dermatological damage. <laughs> but I didn't know any better. It was just yeah. fun. Cool. I mean, people would literally, I remember a day a kid ran into a wall. We we're playing kickball and he was going to try to catch the ball and didn't look and just ran into a brick wall. Like that's not, that's a real thing that happened. And that was like, you get to Sidwell and there's a field hockey. What is field hockey? Yeah. I know what a field is. I kind of know what hockey is. I know I'm not into it, but this is different. So the physical layout blew my mind. The, the design of the buildings, the amount of light <laughs> kind of blew my mind. And, uh, and these kids, so many kids that I had, did not know. Uh, so much whiteness. I had not been around so much and so many resources. Uh, and so I knew a few. In fact, um, Karima Barrow. Uh, and Maya, I can't remember Maya's last name no more, but we were in the DC Youth Orchestra program together. Mm. And those were the two I really knew. Um, and that helped. That helped to know two uh, girls of color from outside, from actual DC. <laughs> not, not that part of DC I'd never really hung out in before. So it was, a, it, was, it was jarring. It was magical. It was exciting. It was tense. I had uh, some cultural confusion and run-ins. I still remember nearly getting into a fight with these kids because they made fun of the way I spoke mm. because I said, I, I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. And they just mocked me relentlessly. Like, oh, are you going you're gonna to take out your hatchet? You're going to chop us into little pieces to get information? You're going to ax us? And like no one had ever made fun of the way I spoke mm -hmm. before. And that felt you know shameful and embarrassing and infuriating. Um, and yeah, I, it was, it was, you know what else I remember? Uh, Bob Williams, mm -hmm. Bob Williams, the principal of the middle school at the time, mm -hmm. this like glorious black dude with the baritonist, bassiest voice, just like an anchor in a sea of change. And, and I think my mom felt okay sending me to Sidwell because she felt okay about Bob Williams. Mm -hmm. uh, that he would have my back and kind of watch over me in this mm -hmm. newness. So mm -hmm. that was, uh, he was a bridge to mm -hmm. home in some ways. And yeah, and eventually, you know, I, with, that first year was like a little wobbly, but then I, I, I had fun. I play, I, Marcus Shaw was uh, 
assigned to me as my welcome buddy. Another member of the class of 95, black dude, lifer, been in Sidwell's whole life. And he started showing me the ropes and point things out. And I, I met Micaiah, uh, Ramal, and Jamal. We had a little crew, and I'm not naming everybody, but these are a handful of the names I remember. I remember being, uh, it was Team North. At we, I was on Team East, then it became Team, well, I was Team Three, then it became East because numbers were bad and you couldn't rank people. So like directions are all equal, whatever. Um, but I remember like being among the smartest kids in math class with Stacy, another little black boy. And that just felt kind of cool. Um, and I remember Marcus saying to me one day, we're walking down the hallway of, of team North South team one, two, and we saw a sign for like an audition for, uh, the black history month show. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, we should check this out. And I was like, okay, let's see what this is all about. I'm following my designated big brother here. And we walk out the back door to school, up those, you know, along the track, up the stairs, yeah. take a left, and it's Ricky Payton's room. And I did a little singing ditty thing in audition, and there was a positive response, and I found myself in theater. And that, I mean, just the world of those shows and Ricky Payton. And so, yeah, Sidwell, that was, that was, that's how I remember entering, awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, with acne and chubbiness, <laughs> with a lot of ignorance and a lot of hope, and with some helpful guidance and some guardrails around me, some guardian angels around me uh, to help me through it. Baratunde, you are bringing back memories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those names. I was also on Team East um, when I was in middle school, and you all were a bit older. And I remember looking up to looking up to you all as as black students and trying to find my way as well. So um, that that is definitely uh, brings me back. And I want to ask one thing about, you know, your Sidwell experience to see if you felt this too. Can you talk a little bit about going to Sidwell while living where you lived? And once you got kind of acclimated to the Sidwell culture, how that was, um, how you merged that, or if you merged that with the culture that you had at home with your friends um, on Newton Street. Thank you for that question. Um, Sidwell didn't leave a lot of room in my schedule for merging with anything other than Sidwell. And I had a, um, you know, the word that comes to mind, Natalie and Brian is family. I think I developed a bit of family through Sidwell and especially through Black Sidwell. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Marcus lovingly and I'm still in touch with him and I should probably tell this to his face or at least send him this audio. He really helped orient me. Mm-hmm. Ricky Payton you know, created this space where we could celebrate our culture and each other and still be at Sidwell. Um, and the, w- the way I physically got to school is, is literal, but it's also a powerful metaphor for I think the distance traveled. My mother worked for um, the federal government and she had to go to work early, like any reasonable adult. <laughs> and so what would happen is she would drop me off at a bus stop a little bit south of where we lived at 16th and Newton Street, something around like Park Road. And I would take, mm-hmm. I think it was the H2 across town and it would like cut down by the zoo and go up Porter Street. Mm-hmm. And I could either get out and walk the rest of the way, or if I'm feeling lazy, like take a bus up Wisconsin Avenue to drop me off right by those tennis courts. Along that journey, I met Neferay, 
mm-hmm. um, who was, I think, one year behind me. So my mm-hmm. and she they happened to be driving to school where I waited for the bus. So I would regularly get driven to school on certain days because I would just defray her mom would pick me up. And so we got this little like black car to Stidwell of these working moms driving their little black kids to this other universe. Um, even when we moved, you know, so, so I think having in the, in the actual neighborhood where I lived, I got up so early and we were, we were out by like 7am and I just got to school early. I was usually the first kid at school mm-hmm. and I would eat my breakfast on the steps of the middle school out of Tupperware. Mm-hmm. And then I think Kareem, Maya, um, she, was that her name? Was it Maya? She's very tall. She played yeah. bass. Yeah. yeah. She was one of the early ones too. And so we would kick and then you, kids start to trickle in. Then you start to see the fancier cars dropping kids off, like literally on time, as opposed to like, I had to take the early bus from across town. Um, so all that time I might've been in the neighborhood, I was just at school eating. And then after school, you get the extracurriculars. I was I did track um, in middle school even, and certainly by the upper school, we got the newspaper and track and the BSU. Uh, and so I'm getting home at dark. So there's no, there's no merging. I remember coming home, you know, by bus one day and somebody saying something to me like, oh, you, you going to that white school or maybe like, maybe why do you talk that way? It's really interesting to get criticized at Sidwell for talking like I'm from Newton Street and to be criticized on Newton Street for talking like I was at Sidwell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, caught, caught in the middle there a little bit, but not heavily judged. And I think partly there was, I was already in the nerd crew even at the public elementary school, gifted and talented program, and wasn't shamed for that. Like mm-hmm. even my best friends, we were cool-ish, I guess, but also nerds. And then I just didn't see people, I think is the more honest answer. I was in the world of Sidwell pretty full time. Yeah. Um, and where I did have hood stuff and, and community stuff, it wasn't so much just on the block, but it was about this other organization I joined, thanks to Bob Williams, the Uncle Bia, Afrocentric rites of passage program. Mm-hmm. And so that was every Saturday we would gather. And that was like the blackest thing in the universe. And mm-hmm. they helped me keep my mind straight about history, my value, etc. And I think Sidwell in concert with Uncle Bia created potentially devastating cognitive dissonance, but ultimately uh, showed me multiple ways of looking at the world. And, and I had to reconcile it for myself. Uh, and th- but that helped me feel grounded and real and not totally lost in the world that I had just joined because mm-hmm. it was still some of the references were, just, were so foreign to me. I think if I didn't have Uncle Bia um, and if I didn't have my specific mother, <laughs> who at least made sure our house was grounded, um, I, I would have turned out differently. I don't know if I'd say worse, but I'd be very different, I think, without that tether or that grounding. Mm. From there, you head off to Harvard, and and you are this philosophy major. And from the philosophy major, you jump to what I would say Dick Gregory was. You become a public intellectual. Um, and how, how does that arc happen? <laughs> well, a lot of roads lead back to Sidwell. And I'd be remiss if I didn't briefly acknowledge some of the pain and trauma of my time there, which forged me in a certain way to make these other leaps. 
Sidwell was uh, a bit tritely the best of times and the worst of times. Mm -hmm. And I found so much of myself there. I found my capacity to lead, to, to be indignant, to articulate ideas on stage and on page. All that was tested and born, really. Uh, I found his first expression as Sidwell. That was Horizon. A another Sidwell kid saw something in me I didn't yet see in myself, which is like, I think you could write. You should do the newspaper. My mom didn't tell me to do that. My sister, who was becoming a journalist herself, nine years older, she didn't tell me to do that. Mm -hmm. It was this kid at Sidwell. And it wasn't like a black thing. It was just a Sidwell kid. Mm -hmm. It was like, you should, you should do the newspaper. And that changed my whole life. You know, like the whole trajectory of my story is altered by this one kid. And I remember where I was when he said it. Which is, we were, there was a big tree out front of the upper school we used to all hang out at. And it was under that tree. It was like the tree of knowledge, you know? And it was like, all right. And then I'd lived the horizon life and going to printers and being out till four in the morning. My mom thinking I'm doing all kinds of wilds. No, we're just putting a newspaper together. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I was with Paul, who she trusted. So, okay, I know you're not getting into any nonsense because a, a black mother's fear for where her son is at three in the morning in mm -hmm. DC in the 90s. Are you kidding me? That's, that's dangerous. You know, I don't even know how afraid she must have been all the time. It's honestly just kind of hitting me right now talking to you. So to get to philosophy, I got to go through the gauntlet of Sidwell, of the blackness of Sidwell, of discipline and expulsion and friends not being there anymore and protests and Rodney King and going down to the Department of Justice with the BSU with a busload of kids chanting no justice, no peace and doing walkouts and staging coups inside of meetings for worship. <laughs> all that, all that. And, and Brian, I think you know this story, but in case you don't, um, there was, you know, basically a, a close friend of ours got expelled our senior year. We were livid over it. Mm -hmm. And there was some process that we felt was not just in terms of transparency and consistency and honor code and blah, blah, blah. And so I decided with my thin historical understanding of the 60s, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to pick, I want some wanted posters. And, uh, and I, I, <laughs> I worked at the Washington Post at night while I was at Sidwell because of Ali Mohammadi, because of Daniel Goldman, as in Daniel S. Goldman, assistant U.S. attorney, who was the lead investigator on the impeachment, the House Impeachment Committee. That Dan Goldman, we did Horizon together. Mm -hmm. and, and Dan had this job in the copy aid station of the Washington Post. And then Ali had the job. And then I had the job. It was kind of this Sidwell job that got passed around. And we yeah. were high schoolers. And everybody else who worked in that little mailroom was a college journalism major at various universities in the area. So it was a really privileged spot to be in. But I took advantage of that privilege because the Washington Post had these huge printing machines, these copy machines where you could print out a big piece of paper the size of a broadsheet newspaper fully expanded. And I used my computer skills. Thank you, Ross Lynette. <laughs> and I made wanted posters for uh, the dean, <laughs> Bo, Bo Williams, and oh. the principal, Bernie Nelt. And because I was, I was, I was angry. <laughs> And, uh, and I charged them with violating the honor code. I charged them with mail fraud because that's how we got Capone. I charged them with, <laughs> and I because, I'm, because I'm the kid that gets to school early, right? I'm the first person on campus. So I, I got the run of the place for like 40 minutes. No one's there. And I plaster the campus with these giant wanted posters. And I put them, and it was on the day we had meeting for worship. And I knew that would stir the pot. 
So I put it inside the, the, the old gym where we used to gather for that. I put it inside the entrance way. I put it in the teacher's lounge and I almost got busted because my teacher saw me coming out of the lounge. And look, I had such goodwill with the teachers because I, was, I wasn't really a disciplined student and I did good and I probably made the school look good. So they, they let me slide, but like, whoo, that was close. <laughs> uh, and that day, whoo, campus was lit. Oh man, it was exciting. It was exciting. So all that is, is groundwork. And once I realized I'm going to Harvard, I remember talking to Erica Berry, uh, my Spanish then English teacher, quite a transition that she made. And she said, you should take a philosophy class when you get there. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, cool. All right. That's, I guess one of four classes I have to choose. All right. What are the other three going to be? I knew I was going to do math because I was really into the math thing. And, uh, and I did some other stuff. So Erica Berry helped set me on a specific philosophical course because that, I never had the idea to take philosophy until she put it in my head. Mm -hmm. And I made sure to take a philosophy class. And, uh, and all that activism, man, I mean, that's like me channeling my mom. That's me fighting for what I believe in. That's me knowing my own bound. All that stuff we just talked about, like Sidwell, let me practice all that stuff. Sometimes very painfully, sometimes very joyfully. Mm -hmm. uh, and that led me to feel, you know, and then the final piece of the puzzle is like, I didn't realize how good a school Sidwell was until I wasn't there. And I had this story in my head as a high schooler, high school sucks. Okay. Everybody believes that. Mm -hmm. Sidwell's got all these problems. Oh, it's a, it's a drag. And we're always fighting for our rights and blah, blah, blah. The white people, all that's true. And the world is that times a billion. Yeah. And I got to Harvard University and I went into my calculus class there, a semi-advanced calculus class. And I get the textbook. And it's the same textbook I used as Sidwell. The head of the math department at Harvard wrote the textbook that I used at Sidwell. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? And I get into my expository writing class at Harvard, Harvard University. And I don't think I'm a good writer. My English teachers at Sidwell thought I could use some work. And I write this essay and they're like, you should get this published. And I publish my essay in a campus magazine and I win an award judged by Malcolm Gladwell for that essay my freshman year mm -hmm. because Sidwell set such a high standard that it made writing at Harvard easy and math at Harvard easy. So that just, whoo, like, thank you, Sidwell. I still got beef, but like, yo, you really set me up. Yeah. Um, and, and, that gave, and I had confidence and some freedom. I saw other students get to Harvard and get whopped in the face and run into a brick wall because mm -hmm. they didn't know what was coming. And Sidwell prepared me for that. Um, so yeah, and I, I do my thing there. I did a newspaper at Harvard. Thank you, Horizon. Stepped mm -hmm. it up to the Crimson mm -hmm. and actually pursuing the philosophy thing um, a little bit <laughs> and the computer thing again uh, and some of the math, but mostly the computers. And, and the, uh, the comedy comes out and sets the stage for the rest of my life. And I won't tell it in real time. I feel like I'm moving a little slow chronologically, but the leap is my freshman year, I start writing um, an email newsletter that's comedic. Mm -hmm. And it, it builds off of an email newsletter I started at Sidwell where I shared comedy I found on the early internet. But no, it was nothing original. It was just like found, I was, I was a curator, as they would say today. Uh, and then at Harvard, I started writing satirical news and just sharing it with my friends. 
And then I started an email list and more people signed up for it and more people signed up for it. And that gave me a little pocket to develop my voice mm -hmm. and to merge some of this philosophizing with some of this activisming with some of this emerging comedic thing to process it. And the mm -hmm. comedy bridge was at Sidwell. Like I really needed comedy. I wasn't funny at Sidwell. I really wasn't. If kids say I was, they are lying to you. <laughs> and they have remembered or re-remembered like a bad, you know, eyewitness who's like, oh yeah, I saw it. I saw the gun. They, there was no gun. There were no what? jokes. I was the most righteous, serious, wokish, probably mildly annoying kid, except I was sweet about it, I think. And and very um, I think I was a pretty compassionate kid. So I didn't like rub people's faces in it, but I could I could be I could be a little judgy, especially with the other black kids too. I got so mad at them for like being down with the Washington football team name at the time. Like we are black people, we cannot be tossing around racial slurs. So I was that kid. And I had no jokes to help that go down. I was just self-righteous. And because of all that tension that caused me to create wanted posters for the head of the upper school and the dean of students, I found comedy to relieve it. Not making it, just immersing in it. And I would watch Whoopi and listen to Eddie and Lake Wobegon, and I'd read all this internet humor and share it, and I'd write. I remember I was so furious at a, after a meeting with Bernie No over something I can't even remember. And I went down to the track and I ran as hard as I could. And I took my little reporter's notebook that I got from Horizon and I just started writing, just writing, writing, writing. And so I found an outlet for it. And at Harvard, I found my own voice through the humor, which wasn't yet developed as Sidwell. And that set me, the winds were at my back at that point. Everything else is just a continuation of that. Everything else. It's funny you say that, you know, you were that kid at Sidwell. I remember you as the one that knew everything about blackness, right? Like, I, I just remember that you were that, that guru, the BSU head, like that person that held the school accountable from my, you know, it's different looking up. I was younger. Right. Um, and, and now, you know, I read the book. I read um, How to Be Black and um, you know, followed you along the way from there. And I find the comedy piece very powerful. And I find that um, powerful in the way that you can get the message to people in a different way than you can with the, you know, beating them over the head to say that you're racist. Um, and I, want, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and, and what you've learned from that. Cause I find that, um, I want to look more into that as we try to improve the school, mm. um, how to bring more people in. And I feel like you're really effective with that. Um, yeah. While the comedy came later, it is a subset of this thing called the arts. Mm -hmm. And this is where, um, this is where black history helps out. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is I watched this documentary when I was in high school called a laugh, a tear. And it was all about black comedians and processing our pain. And that's where I first found that Dick Gregory quote, uh, that Brian, that you mentioned in the opening of from, from Better Than Crying. And so I, I kind of intellectually understood that, oh, maybe there's a role for humor that would come in later in my own practice. But at the moment, using arts, using music, using song, using dance, like we put on plays. And I said, well, and the tradition continues. You know, I was there a few years ago and saw 
full circle. I mean, Natalie, you talk about looking up to our year. Like I looked up to these giants that came before us, mm-hmm. like Pilar Lynch, mm-hmm. daughter of Ackland Lynch, like a legend, a legend in the DC Pan-African. I was like, we have access to that? Fan? What? And she was the most baddest, asses, dopest person I could ever imagine meeting. Mm-hmm. Must have been three years older, maybe maybe more, maybe, maybe, maybe four. Um, but putting on those shows and trying, to, I remember us trying to communicate our pain and anger and struggle to our fellow students mm-hmm. through these shows. And, and I remember the year where we deviated from the general like kings and queens of Africa and the Negro spiritual, like the kind of survey of black history mm-hmm. that was the vibe. And we brought in uh, Mel Cummings. Uh, Samira Samori's mom, who was a professor of rhetoric at Howard, and uh, and she worked with Ricky Payton. And actually, no, no, we brought in a playwright. I'm so sorry, I'm mixing up. Mel Cummings normally worked with us. They brought in this playwright from I think uh, GW, and we wrote a, a like a custom play. And it this was not your regular Black History Month show. Mm-hmm. This was straight from the heart. Like this is what it's like to be black as well. Yeah. <laughs> and but we put but we put jokes in it, and we put mm-hmm. jokes in it about what it's like to be interpreted with all our starter jackets. People yeah. think we're in a gang. We had a, a whole little poem, three black guys is a gang, three black guys is a gang in the hall, on the street, wherever we may hang. It and seems to take one look at us and label us a gang. I still know that. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> that's nuts. Right. <laughs> so that's art, like the power of art to stick and make it rhyme. And we did like a step show. Like we kind of wove all these things in. Um, so what I learned later is it's 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 a frustrating lesson, and I know it even more now because 2020 has been the realest, ugliest, hardest, deadliest, foulest, flamiest year, mm-hmm. and everything's just in stark relief. There's no pretense anymore for those who allowed themselves to be fooled by pretense that everything was good. That's done, mm-hmm. and that amount of raw pain, like I for myself needed to filter it. I needed to um, to to reverse osmosis it or something, and put it in a form where I could digest it, mm-hmm. and then help others. So the so the comedy as a function is just a great pain processor for me, and mm-hmm. I've learned it's a great pain processor for others, and not just the pain for Black people, mm-hmm. but especially the pain for White people. Mm-hmm. And what I have learned frustratingly is that white people are far behind in this journey and it's terrifying and painful. And when I'm afraid I get defensive and I shut down and I don't want to go any further. That's, that's kind of human and natural. And now I'm just like multiplying that times millions of people who've been miseducated into their own unjust desserts. Yeah. Ooh, buddy, I better put some jokes in there. You know, because it is it is a therapeutic and attempted healing practice to welcome people into that level of openness and honesty and realness and and hurt. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a it's a Maury Povich Jerry Springer moment when you find out your daddy's not your daddy. Yeah, that your daddy's been lying to you. That Santa's not real. Right. You better wrap that up in some bacon and some pancakes and some syrup. Help <laughs> that go down. That truth is a that's a thick pill. Yeah. You can see you do that on the TED Talk, in fact. And you can feel um, in uh, the response from the audience various levels of discomfort. Yeah. 
right? You you move them into this very important conversation about changing the action through your use of comedy. Um, and and while you say that, I mean, you you mentioned the wrapping this up in um, a pancake with some bacon for um, white folks. When when you're brought back uh, for the question after your TED talk, you you talk about uh, living a lie, right? You respond to the question by um, talking about the difficulty of living a lie. And whiteness is a lie. Race is a lie. How do we move forward from a lie that has had very real consequences on the way that people live their lives? And what is it, one of the things that you, you, you say is that, that this is doing so is important for all of us, including white folks. And I think that people don't often think about that. White people often don't think about that. How, how can, how do you help people think about that, Baratunde? Because you're very effective in the way you, you set up, the way you bring people into the conversation. Um, I wrap it up in a story bacony, juicy, maple syrupy, but there's vegan options. Yeah, that's good. I'm vegan actually. So, yeah. Yeah. so right. we can get you a tan, you know, we can do the gluten-free if you want to, right. gluten-free pancakes, some organic blueberry. Pick myself. Right. It has to work. So. <laughs> so you do that. You do that. One is um, from a technique perspective, I've, I've learned to naturally interrupt my story with the aside, thank you, Shakespeare, for teaching me that word. Uh, again, as taking that first Shakespeare class, I think I said, well, oh, aside, that's a little turn to the camera B. Boom, I like that. That's fun. Mm -hmm. And it's a check-in. It's a check-in to say, like, I'm still with you. I see what you're seeing. I'm one of you. I'm on this, I'm on this train, too. I don't actually know everything. I'm not the king of blackness or wokeness or anything. I'm on the journey, too. So technique-wise, I throw, the, throw jokes in and throw asides in to, like, humanize myself because... I know what it's like to be preached to by somebody who seems to know everything and it's very non-identifiable because <laughs> um, they seem to be on a different level. Then um, I, I try to sympathize and empathize with the struggle, uh, the plight. You know, one of the things that I've been doing, I, I, I've done over 100 public appearances since June of 2020, as we record this in December of 2020. Uh, some media stuff like MSNBC, but mostly talks, you know, to groups, mm -hmm. to kids, uh, companies, you know, organizations. And I've learned um, to share my version of the thing I'm asking other people to do. And this is a late evolution of my own process in this work. I, I tell this story about um, the idea of privilege. And it's, it's this dirty word. I don't feel privileged. I grew up poor too. My family struggled. Nobody handed me nothing. Cool, mm -hmm. cool, cool. So here's the deal. I know about this because I possess it because I have benefited from it too. Mm -hmm. 
So I got to acknowledge that. I can't be asking you to take some journey I'm not willing to take myself. And then I say, okay. So some of what I've gotten, I, it's not just because I worked real hard or just because I got lucky or had the right connect. It's because the way the world perceived me set me up for a certain type of success, a certain type of outcome. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do with that? I mean, I am going to feel a little type of way about it for a minute. Well, you tell me I didn't work hard. You got into Harvard because I'm a guy. What are you trying to say? What, so if I was a girl, I wouldn't have gone to Harvard. You would take my achievements away from me. I indulge in that for a moment. It's human. It's natural. Then I think of my dog, Superman. <laughs> I don't remember Superman ever wallowing and complaining about his flight privilege. It, doesn't, it didn't happen. It knows no episode of nothing, nothing. He yeah. out here saving kids, catching school buses, trying to reverse time, using the power that he has, however he got it, to, to help others, mm-hmm. to help the many, not just himself. He's not out here just robbing banks with his flight, yeah. <laughs> justifying it, because I can't help how I was born. Mm-hmm. He's trying to serve with it. And so how are we trying to use whatever we got to serve? That's a part of the transition. And then the other big piece, which comes back to how I answered that story, Brian, that question um, is that we are we are living inside of stories, mostly. And the philosopher in me has come to the conclusion, probably belatedly, uh, many other people have realized this too, that the idea of the real world is um, slippery. Most of us don't interact with the real world per se. We don't have direct experience with all the things we know to be true. We're in a faith-based existence. I've, I've never been to most places in the world, yet I agree that they exist. How do I know they exist? Because someone told me. How do I know this is how I'm supposed to operate in the world? Because someone told me actively through words and instructions or implicitly through their own behaviors and through incentives and punishments. We learn what the world is by the story of that world as told to us. And then we get invested in that story and we repeat it to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's a great freedom in that. Stories can be changed. We can edit it. It's a Google Doc. Shift it up. So we've been living in this tiny, tiny story, which we can acknowledge has privileged a few at the expense of the many for at least a couple hundred years, depending on what groups we're talking about, maybe a couple thousand. And we can first acknowledge it. Okay, historical facts. Boom, let's establish that shared reality. Then we can honor what it's gotten us. Whether we're talking about personal development and traumas we've been through or people we used to be, we don't have to totally shun our own individual past. We can say like, oh, I used to be this way. I was grown up this way. Whether your parent was abusive, okay, but it's, I learned something from that. It helped me become who I am. It is a part of my story. Now it's time to write some new stuff. Now it's time to grow beyond it. So collectively, we can look back at our past and not be held hostage by the shame associated with it, such that we never even look at it because we're so ashamed. Okay, these things happen. And look what we were able to do. I mean, it's not all terrible. We've made some progress. We've achieved some great things. But what I like to think about is all the greatness that our species has achieved, that our nation has achieved, was with most of the talent not even in the game. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, so all you know, I take the white supremacist argument, right? 
Well, the, the white man went to the moon and the white man barely, barely. You might have been to Mars by now. You know, is their glass half empty or is it half full? I'm going to look at these achievements as half empty because you left your most talented player. You locked them up. You made them stay at home and raise your kids. You, you, you threw them all at the wars. You didn't want to fight for yourself. You made them believe they were less than such that they didn't even push as hard themselves. Imagine if you unlocked that. And because it's not finite, because the world as real is just what we imagine it to be and agree it to be, we can consensually, collectively, delusionally agree in things like money and Apple computers. Those aren't real. Yeah, folks is riding in yachts based on that non-realness. So we can generate so much more if we free ourselves. And that's the, the invitation to white people, broadly speaking, white men, more narrowly speaking, white sisters. And you can slice and dice this a thousand ways, but I think you get the spirit of it, is that this change doesn't have to be a threat. And what a lot of people fear and seize up on, what this outgoing president has exploited masterfully and, and heinously, is that this change is going to lead to your destruction. Mm-hmm. That the only story possible for you is one where you are on top of someone else. And the moment they get free, they're going to do to you what you did to them or what your ancestors did to them. So you can't trust it. So Obama's out here handing out special stuff to black folk. Never happened. But it's easy to believe if that's the way you've been brought up to believe the world should work. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I want people to feel like there's another option, that this change that is possible doesn't need to lead to vengeance and the same petty smallness, that there's a bigger story possible where, like I said in that TED Talk, everybody rich now. Mm-hmm. Right. That sentence is possible. You live in a tiny world where a male executive exploits a female employee for sexual gain and power dynamics, or you live in a bigger world where he mentors her and they both make more money mm-hmm. and achieve their creative passions. Like, it's not easy. Yeah. I know that. But I don't think that the that type of invitation, we need more of that. Mm-hmm. Because doing it for me, doing it for the downtrodden, doing it for the oppressed people, that only goes so far. Charity and altruism are only certain levels of incentive. I need people to realize they're going to get something out of it too. Right. Don't do it for me. Do it for you. Yeah. And there's yeah. an elegance to which you describe it, the the way you break it down in the TED Talk yeah. uh, and an accessibility, I think, that uh, is very powerful. What you said is important. You know, as we think about allyship and, you know, and doing this work so far, you know, you always get the question, well, what can we do, right, from white folks? What can I do? What, how do I, how do I serve as an ally or an accomplice? And I think about, you know, the article that Dax wrote and Dax is working with us now, um, helping us through some things and looking at it as not what can we do for these brown people, but what would help me too? Mm-hmm. Like, it's what, like, I guess, can you talk just briefly about, you know, thoughts about allyship and that question that I'm sure you get from folks especially white folks of what can I do? How do I, how do I change this? The, the good news is there's plenty of work, yeah. plenty of work to go around and anything and everything can contribute. 
And so I, I like to tell folks, and I think anyone listening who has that question, um, extend your timeline and humble your expectations. Yeah. What, what we are up against with all the hope and inspiration I can muster about the power to change the story. and Yeah, 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 yeah. Also hundreds of years invested in that story. Every industry, every practice, every institution. There is not an institution that has thrived in the past 50 years that hasn't benefited from this subjugatory, oppressive system. That's just impossible because that's how the whole system was set up. Right. So to undo that will take time, a lot of it. And mm -hmm. so let's just, we're not going to wrap this up by like the next fiscal quarter so yeah. we can get back to brunch. We have right. to do things at the same time. Um, and I think there's another kind of broad orientation point I would make because folks want to cut right to who do I write a check to? Do I give all my money to Brian Stevenson Equal Justice Initiative or the NAACP or Stacey Abrams? Like, who can I outsource my allyship to with a, in a transactional way? Is there a, is there one book I need to read? And yes, it's How to Be Black. But also, like, is there, is there another book I need to read? What's the word of all the books? And so there, I think there is a tendency, a bias toward the tangible and the external yeah, and the finding fault out there. And I'm going to rally against so-and-so over there. Yeah. We all have something internal to ourselves and that exploration. I want people to explore themselves. I want okay. people to look at their family history, look at their financial transactions, look at their associations and think about what were you taught? Mm -hmm. Who taught it to you? Mm -hmm. Where, how do you react? And just be honest with yourself. I don't, you don't, don't tell me, you don't perform it for a person of color. Just, I'm not asking you to flagellate yourself publicly like some puritanical person, just for you, with you, just you. Dig into that historical truth for you. Mm -hmm. And I, I want people to think about their power. Uh, I have this this podcast, How to Citizen with Baratunde, and we have this premise of like what it means to citizen as a verb as opposed to some legal status, which can be weaponized against people. It's to show up, number one. Number two is to participate, you know, it's to show up and, and participate, basically. Um, it's to build relationships with other people. It's to understand your power and it's to do all this for the benefit of the many. And understanding your power is a critical step for the person who wants to be a good ally. Right. That's we great. have power where, where we live. So I inventory your power. Where do, you, where do you make decisions? Where do people listen to you? Are there places where people listen to you more than another person? That's an opportunity. Um, and find those avenues where you are. You don't have to go to across state lines <laughs> to do any of that. Um, and feel into all these choices we're making. I'm working on it with money, right? Where do where do I bank? Mm -hmm. I'm giving somebody the power of compound interest with these assets. Do they have my interest at heart? Can I make a different choice? And so I'm going to start researching. What does that look like? What does that mean? So, and, and, and the other thing that I'm thinking about is like, I know people pay attention to me. Yeah. So who am I citing, elevating, sharing? You know, when I put my newsletter together, like who are the authors of the pieces? What sorts of publications am I generously offering traffic to. Mm -hmm. That's how I have power. And it's, it's not to be ashamed of. We shouldn't feel bad 
about it. We should only feel bad if we're misusing it or not using it to the best of our ability to contribute. Then you feel a little bad about it. And then you work on it. Get over the bad feelings and move. Just keep moving. And the last piece, these are all kind of more higher concept things, but I want people who want to be good allies and good co-conspirators to be um, to expect to mess up mm-hmm. and not be deterred by that. Mm-hmm. The that feeling of awkwardness or embarrassment or shame when you say the wrong thing or show up in the wrong way or didn't get the exact citation of the, great. You have erred. To err is human. Right. I learned that on the walls of oh, what was her name? The Caribbean black lady who taught Do- Dorothy Delore. Miss Henry. Miss Henry yeah. had that on the wall. <laughs> to err is human. Yeah. That's all of us. And nobody's perfect. And ultimately, if you if you enter this trying to please some woke activist you're looking up to, mm-hmm. that's the wrong way to go about it. And you set yourself up for disappointment and failure and you're looking for validation from beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's limited. That's not a race thing. That's just a human thing. You got to find your reasons for doing it. You got to find your satisfaction when you do it right. You got to find your forgiveness when you do it wrong for yourself. And, and the humility to say, okay, I messed up. I, I don't get to tap out because so many of us don't. Don't get to walk away. So don't you walk away. Mm-hmm. You deal with it. You sit with it. Have the feeling. Acknowledge it. It's okay. Right. Nobody expecting you. Actually, some people are expecting you to be perfect. Those people are wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and know that in your heart of hearts, as painful as it is. And I'm, I have colleagues who are very harsh. <laughs> you know, I'm a little less harsh on this. Mm-hmm. You're going to mess up. I know I mess up. So let's allow for that and keep moving. Just on that, right? Like I, I totally resonate. What you said about that this is going to take time resonates with me, um, and that's that's kind of what I've, you know, I say, and then I get in response sometimes, you know, for our people of color, um, our students of color, we're tired of waiting. Yeah, you know, and and finding that balance between understanding that systemic change takes time. Um, and what are we going to do right now? Um, what about those people right now, those other people of color like us and, and others that, that are hurting now? Um, I guess I'm asking as, as advice and, and wanting your opinion on, on how you deal with that, that strange balance, that tension. Yeah. Um, this is all quite significant work. Mm-hmm. It, it is political work. It is emotional work. It is spiritual work if we really try to pull back layers. Mm-hmm. And for the people more directly in the struggle, I think we have to, as we have historically, find our joy, mm-hmm. pick our battles. Because mm-hmm. um, while we in some ways can't afford to wait, we also can't afford to be relentless. Wow. It's, it's, 
without the right guards up, without shields, like mm -hmm. we're over, we're hyper exposing ourselves. I remember describing because of this year, because this has been my most intense public year in 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 this in the stay at home world, I've been more public than ever. Um, because Derek Chauvin decided to slowly murder George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And I handle hazardous material every day. That's mm -hmm. kind of the work I've chosen. To see it that way helps me understand the nature of the work. I got to take a break, man. Mm -hmm. Can't just be like grabbing nuclear material with your bare hands every day and not resting and getting isotopes. I don't know. I There it is. There's some science in there that explains why what I tried to say eventually could make sense. And... I want us to remember that there is more to us than struggle. Mm -hmm. We all have work to do. Mm -hmm. The white folks got to play a, a version of catch up to mm -hmm. acknowledge in this truth and drop in the fear of losing everything versus what all they could gain. Mm -hmm. And the black folks to keep it simple and binary, but for the purposes of illustration, need to not just define ourselves as the oppressed, the downtrodden, the, the strugglers right that's exhausting mm -hmm. and so we got to celebrate our wins we've got to glory in our resilience we're here stop and start a party right now <laughs> at any moment any black person has the right to break out into joyful celebration of life for possessing life. Yeah. We don't need an excuse to block party. Every day is a freaking block party because mm -hmm. we're here. And if you're in a space, like a Sidwell type space, all the more. Mm -hmm. And you take everything that institution has to offer, all of it, and don't burn up all your time feeling bad about the way the thing is set up. You grab what you came to get. You party like a rock star and you nudge and you change and you do the wokeness thing. Like, But you don't have to make, it's not your responsibility to be a full-time agent of change for all these institutions. Yeah. We already made the blues and hip hop. <laughs> Our work could technically be done. Everything that needs to be said has already been said in every medium ever invented or to be invented. This is true. Right. Some of us feel called to repeat it. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do that all the time and not everybody has to do it. Mm -hmm. And so cut yourself some slack too. I want everybody to be forgiving with themselves. Yeah. Including us, especially us. Because it is, it is, it can be toxic mm -hmm. and exhausting. Um, and remember how great you are. I'm struck by the energy that you bring to every encounter. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and, you know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, working with hazardous material. What is your spiritual foundation? How do you renew yourself and nurture yourself to do this very important work, very serious work, work that is aimed at reversing systemic oppression 
and still find a sense of joy. That's it. That's simple. Oh man, I thought I thought it was gonna be a hard one, Brian. Jeez, thanks. Thanks for <laughs> the layup of a question. Um, I my mother described herself thusly. I am a child of the universe. Ooh. And I think that is my spiritual foundation as well. I don't always, but aspire to and often feel a sense of marvel at existence. It's, it's crazy that we get to live. Mm-hmm. Like we get to experience things. We get to struggle. We have emotions and we, we are not just passengers in the experience. We get to drive it. We are not consumers of life. We're creators. We're co-creators of the universe. And this energy that's in us has flowed through countless others and continues to right now and will after we no longer have a conscious awareness of our existence. That's inspiring to me. I think creation is inspiring to me. I've had enough experiences in 43 years to have created some things, um, to have seeded ideas or put a piece of something together, whether it's a Lego thing as a kid or a story as an adult, and see that it has a ripple effect in the world. Oh, man, I matter. I exist. I have proof of my existence. We're talking. You prove that I'm here. So that relationship that we have right now is a powerful piece of evidence for my own existence and my own value. So this is, I don't consciously walk around articulating in this way, but in answer to your question, I consider myself part of something great. And I have felt at times my own ability to contribute to that greatness, Mm -hmm. to that thing that's not just me. And that keeps me in the universe. Mm -hmm. I'm not an observer. I'm not just strapped to a table with people experimenting on me like some weird aliens on a ship somewhere. I'm helping pilot the ship in some small way for some short period of what we call time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of cool. That's a bit trippy. You know, I dig it. Yeah. And and to renew, I, I lean into the appreciation. I'm also just so damn lucky. Like I have enough awareness of the relative comfort of all human beings who have ever existed to know that I'm in the top 1% of people that ever lived. Right. Ever lived. I have Wi-Fi, man. Like, it's amazing. You know, like, it's the dopest. And my Wi-Fi is really off the chain. It's the <laughs> best Wi-Fi. And I eat comfortably whenever I want. Mm-hmm. And I have love in my life. And I get to generally speak my mind, even in this vast system of oppression and white supremacy. Cool, cool. That's all true. But I'm still pretty free. Mm-hmm. So I think I just, I try to remember in some of those times when I really need to consciously try to remember, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. And even bad feelings are a privilege because you get to feel. Veritunde philosopher. 
<laughs> there it is. There it is. Yes. All right. I'm using that degree somehow, some way. Philosopher, public intellectual, writer, comedian, producer, someone who encourages us to explore ourselves uh, and to find glory in our resilience. What wonderful lines. Uh, thank you for spending time with us this afternoon. It was all that we had hoped for, all that we knew it would be, and we're very grateful for your time and your insight and for all that you do to push us to change the way, not only that we think about action, but about how we act. So thank you, Bertunde, as always. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Natalie. Extra bonus for being able to share this time with you, my Sidwell era colleague. Um, yes. and if, I can be, if I can be corny on the exit, thank you, my Sidwell friends. <laughs> <laughs> you all got it. Yeah. I love that. I love it.